About a year ago, Heather and I had a date night. In, yeah, whoa. Uh, in Sarnia, we went home to her hometown, and her folks took care of the kids. And uh, Heather's, uh, one of Heather's friends owns like a microbrewery and kind of restaurant in Sarnia that we went to and uh, had a great night. And the guy that served me that night, out of nowhere, was actually a guy that I had grown up with. A family friend who we'd kind of lost contact with over the last bunch of years. And he was the one that actually served us on this evening. And... So Heather and I are eating and hanging out, and we were actually with a couple friends, and it was a great time. And on the way home, I just got talking to her just about this guy. This guy is a great guy that we grew up, great family friends. And it was really interesting because this is a guy who pretty much, when it comes to church, had exactly the same experience I did. Uh, same people, same surrounding, kind of same community, same youth group. And over time, obviously, had uh, known an experience that he had kind of uh, stopped going to church, start, stopped participating in the Jesus community. And so Heather and I just got talking on the way home just how crazy it is that you have the same experiences, and yet you take two different directions, which happens all the time. No judgment at all. But I got thinking about this guy and, you know, loving this guy growing up and his family, and I got thinking... This is just my observation. This isn't a judgment thing. But I got thinking, you know, there's a little bit of a difference between knowing what the church does and what the church is. Uh, it's my observation. This guy probably knows really well. He does know, I know. He knows what the church does. So he knows, like, the songs on Sunday morning and, for us, the Pentecostal preaching on Sunday morning and... The experience at the end of coming, uh, we grew up in a church where it was great. People came up for prayer and ministry, and it was a be beautiful experience. I think he could articulate that. But over time, just as I've ob observed kind of the situation, it's interesting because I'm not sure if a lot of people that have left can articulate what the church is. For a lot of people, it's just, okay, I, I, can, I can tell you what we do, but what is the church? I think this is actually a really deep and profound question because it leads then into how we practice as a community. And I think a lot of us in this room, we know what the church does, but do we know who we are? I always put it like this. If I were to put you on a deserted island, I don't know if you can throw it up, but I, if I were to give you a Bible, say I put you on a deserted island out in the middle of nowhere with no preconceived ideas of what church is, what do you think your conclusions would be? Like if I were to just, you know, no, no background, no history of what we do and, you know, kind of the things that we do here in the West, if I were to give you a Bible on a deserted island with no preconceived ideas of what the church is, what would your conclusions be? Would it be songs? Would it be a guy with a Britney Spears mic on a Sunday morning talking at you? Would it be that? What would you get? Here's what I want to do. I want to take a few minutes and I just want to really look at the core value that we hold as far as church's family. This has been something that has really risen to the top the last couple of years. This is central to who we are. And I actually think there's a story at play around this idea of church at family. And there's a story we're caught up in. So here's what I want you to do. If you have a Bible or you have your phone, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be if you want to follow along there. 
But before we actually get to 1 Peter 2, I kind of want to draw you guys in to the story of God and how we actually get to where we are. And you're like, okay, how long is this going to take? We'll try and go quick. The last couple weeks have been long, pretty intense as far as the philosophy of spiritual practice and formation. But you know, if I were to put you on an island or if I was put on an island with no preconceived ideas of what the church is, what would we conclude? What would our conclusions be if somebody just gave us a Bible? You know, one of the thing, I, things that I think would be helpful, helpful excuse me, for us is to actually go 30,000 feet up and look at how this story unfolds. So, the garden, the garden. God's creation in the garden is good. Humans are very good. And we get a picture here that God is in complete shalom with his image bearers and all of creation. So in the garden, there's sex without lust. There's food without gluttony. There's wine without alcoholism. And we get this picture of fusion and rhythm where God is at peace with humans. Humans are at peace with the earth. It's beautiful. And think about it. The the scripture actually says, the Hebrew writers actually say that they were naked and unashamed. Come on, somebody. Like, this is how crazy the garden is. Some of you are like, what? Yes, they were running around. Maybe, you know, yeah, naked. I, I know there's eventually fig bikinis, but you know what I'm saying. And while this is beautiful, there is an adversary. Actually, right away in the story, we get a picture of the Satan or Satan or the adversary. And here's the thing, and we talked about this last week, the adversary doesn't come to humans in the garden with a gun or a bazooka to their heads. What does he come with? An idea. The serpent comes with lies. He comes with bad ideas. So he gets humans in the garden to question, is God really good? Hmm, right? Maybe he's hiding something from you, and if you do what he says not to do, then you'll actually be like him. And so over time, we get in the picture and in the garden that humans actually give in. They succumb to this temptation and they rebel. And everything spirals out of control. In Genesis 3, you actually get a picture of the curses. So there's curses. Now the world in which we know is cursed. There's pain and childbearing. (laughs) And trust me, I've been there four times. I've been there. Come on, you with me? There is pain and childbearing. Epidural. Epidural. There's chauvinism. So this week was International Women's Day, which is beautiful. I have an amazing wife and a young daughter who I believe little by little is going to change the world with her life. But one of the curses is that what? And this is a curse, guys. He will rule over you. That's a, cur- that's, that's a broken world that we get this. Then you see that there's blood and sweat and tears and toil and work. And some of you know what I'm talking about because your alarm clock is set for five tomorrow and you will sweat and there will be tears and toil. And in the curses, because of this act of rebellion, you will die. Welcome to church. Are you glad you came, right? We celebrated this this week, uh, Ash Wednesday. You are dust and to dust you will return. And so from Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 11, you get brothers killing each other, you get rape, you get incest, you get such wickedness that Yahweh floods the earth and tries to restart. And even after he does that and tries to start through a new people, uh, they rebel so much against him that they build an 
Genesis 11, they build a tower towards the heavens trying to make a name for themselves. This is the story. Yet through this debacle, like it starts so good and goes so wrong so quick, through this debacle, there's a glimmer of hope. God has a plan. And here's the thing, we can't talk about what the church is without starting in the beginning. God's plan was not only a Messiah that he believed would come and save the day and redeem all of history, but his plan was also a people, a Messiah and a people. It's interesting in Genesis 3, actually during kind of this whole curse narrative, one of the things that God says to the serpent, to the Satan, is this, is that he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This, my friends, is a future vision in the garden that someone is going to come to fight and rid the world of evil, that there's somebody that's gonna come and once and for all deal with the, the sin that has embedded in our current reality. You know, theologians actually call Genesis 3 the proto-euangelion, the first good news, that a Messiah is coming to strike the head of the enemy, and sure, evil will nip the Messiah's heel, and we know eventually that's death and resurrection, but ultimately this Messiah is coming to deal with sin once and for all. And obviously we know that that now on this side of the cross is Jesus of Nazareth. But embedded in that story from the very beginning is a picture that God is on mission to redeem and reclaim his people back. But you know, sometimes we think, okay, yes, Jesus, of course, amazing. Jesus is gonna come, he's gonna do all the work, which is great, and we need to have that theology. But you know what's interesting? It wasn't on its own. God actually had a plan in the scripture and in the story of God to use a people. So the scripture gives a glimmer of hope that the Messiah would come, but God also planned that in the meantime, a people, actually a family, would show God's light to the nations. God calls, if you know the story in Genesis 12, this Babylonian, by the way, a Babylonian, whoa, named Abram, who we all know as father, and he had many, and many sons had. Yeah, your, your Sunday school kids are with me. It's good. Some of you are like, I did not grow up in this cult. It's okay. You're okay. You'll be all right. It's good. Some of us, you know, are in counseling and stuff for this stuff. It's good. I'm just joking. But God calls out Abraham. And now the promises that Abraham's seed, his line, would be what we would call this reconciliation project. A family that would grow and grow and grow and would be a light to the hostile nations around them. So all of the really hard nations around them, the call for Israel was actually to be a blessing, to be a light. And at moments, you know in the story that this happens. And you probably also know that over time for Israel, it was a complete freaking disaster, right? They had this plan, be a blessing to those around you. And at moments, it's great. And then for a lot of, I mean, basically, you could sum up the Old Testament as the story of Israel's failure to shine like stars and be the reconciling family to those around them. They failed. Insert Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, after Israel's prophets had gone silent for years, a Jewish, of all people, a Jewish rabbi in Galilee, like the backwoods, right, named Jesus, begins to proclaim with his mouth and with his deeds the good news of the kingdom of God. 
And his ultimate hope, right, and we know this, and this is our mission as a church, is that those who would follow him would be what Israel was called to do in the Old Testament, to love God and love neighbor with everything. We know this is what? The great commandment. And it's interesting, the one who would strike the head of the adversary, the one who would strike the head of the Satan had come. But instead of coming in military force or power or aggression, he came and he laid his life down, defeating the adversary through death and resurrection. Beautiful story. And when you think about it, after his resurrection, not only does he show himself to his followers and to people, 500 people actually, uh, uh, Paul picks up on this. He shows himself to 500 people after his resurrection. And yet, instead of setting up shop in Jerusalem, he chooses out of his own will. This is crazy. He chooses to leave and empower his followers, the church, to be the ones that do the work of the kingdom. So here we are, in the final act of the story, in the final act of history, we are working as a people, as a church, and waiting for the return of the king. And it's just a crazy story, because if, if I was God, probably not the way I would do it, leaving weak and broken people like me and like us to do this work, and yet it's his plan. And here's the thing, if we don't talk about this, then we just do church stuff and not fully comprehend in our minds and our hearts what we're about. And I'll say this, it's as clear as day that the call for Israel to be the light to the nations in the Old Testament is exactly the same call for the church in her present reality. Everything you read about, about Israel being a light to the nations, now on this side, it's actually, the, it's pretty much exactly the same call. You'll hear us as we teach you guys on the weekends and on Sundays here, we often say nothing is in a vacuum. Friends, nothing is in a vacuum. What Jesus did was started in the beginning. God was on a rescue plan from the very beginning and he wanted to use a people. I don't know why. Sometimes I sit even studying this stuff and I think it's crazy because I know who I am, and I know who some of you are, right? I love you. You're great. But like this crazy plan that he actually wants to use us as the reconciliation project in the world. Then we get to 1 Peter 2, and it's very clear that the New Testament writers are picking up on exactly what we've been talking about here. This is what Peter says. He says this, verse 9, if you look down. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, this, my friends, in calling the church in its present reality to be a royal priesthood is just picking up on the, the mission of what Israel was called to in the Old Testament. And you know, through all of this and through the writers of the, the New Testament, we're basically left with three primary metaphors for the church. And we talk about these a lot and we will continue to talk about these. But there's basically three metaphors for the church. One, the temple, right? So the church is the new temple. So instead of going to Jerusalem, and I think I said this morning, getting some dude to go with his robe and chains on his ankles just in case he died in the presence of God. Instead of getting him to go into the Holy of Holies with us, now we are the temple of God. So God dwells within us. We experience the presence and power of God when the temple is together. We're the new temple. We're also the new body. 
This was a great metaphor for Paul to actually pick up on in Roman culture because the Roman Senate, uh, Senate sorry, in the first century was known as a body and now Paul is using the same language but talking about it as the church, that Jesus is the head of the body and now each and every single one of us play our part. We are now the body of Jesus. Is Jesus here? By his spirit, in his body and each of us have a part to play. Some of us, it's the pinky toe. It's beautiful, right? Then the other major uh, kind of metaphor for the church that continues to run throughout the New Testament is this idea of family. Now, the church, I believe, is the new Israel. Not that we replace Israel, but that we're actually brought in to Israel's story to be a light to the nations and a light to the world. These are beautiful metaphors to, for us to kind of pick up on as a community to say, okay, this is actually who we are. Now with temple and body, I would actually say these things are metaphor, but it's interesting with family because sometimes I wonder, maybe family is not a metaphor for the church. Maybe it is our reality, right? Especially when you begin to study historically and through the text what the church was in the first century, if I were to give you a Bible on a deserted island, what would you come up with? What would, what would be, with no preconceived ideas, what would your conclusions be? Well, it's interesting, if you do a lot of study on the early church, the early church actually became a surrogate family. That the church in the first century, in the first churches we read about in the scriptures, really became, like, like not just metaphor, but became family for people especially as many would be shunned or excommunicated from their families during that time, you know, with different religious empires and religions and different things. There were things going on in that moment where really the church became the lifeline. And guys, this is a grind in our cultural moment, this kind of thinking, and I get it. As we've gone to church as family, I, you know, we're living right now and what a lot of philosophers call the age of uh, autonomy or authenticity, the age of autonomy. And quite honestly, can I be honest with you? It's super appealing, and I feel it try and suck me every day. Any introverts in the house? Come on, let's have a little, come on, anybody? Yes, thank you, Lord. There's room for introverts in the church. Now, I, listen, I love people, but as an introvert, everything right now in our cultural moment is designed for me to be an individual, and you too. So funny, I was sitting at a coffee shop. It's been a crazy couple weeks. So I very rarely work Saturdays now. But yesterday, I kind of got pinned down with a bunch of stuff in this morning's teaching and some stuff for this morning. So I had to work yesterday afternoon. So I was in a coffee shop. And it was kind of, I'm going to be honest, it was kind of like utopia, you know? The smell of coffee in the, in the room, me sitting alone, <laughs> no kids, I love my wife, but Heather was doing her thing. Headphones in, MacBook in front of me, and then it was like this moment where I opened a book and nobody was pulling at my leg. And what I did is I began to read like a page and then two pages and then 10 pages in a row. And it was like this moment of like, you talk about the garden, complete shalom right? Now, there were so, without fail, there's always somebody from church or somebody from church. It's great to see people from church. It's always great. Um, but, you know, with culture, 
with culture leading us towards, and I'm, I get sucked into this like you, with culture leading us towards autonomy, everything about the church confronts us with family, but everything in culture is pulling us right now around autonomy. And as much as we think about technology and how beautiful it is that I can FaceTime my little niece who lives in Atlanta, and like, it's almost like she, I guess she doesn't live in Atlanta anymore, but she did live in Atlanta, you know, and seeing her little face and running around in the room, there's some beautiful things I notice for myself who at the end of the day loves autonomy that I can be pulled the other way. And we're in, a, we're in an interesting moment in trying to build community and trying to kind of get back to what the church is all about. Now, I don't know if you've heard this uh, before. I'm sure you have. Uh, I, I mean, I hear this all the time as somebody. Uh, you've probably heard the statement, church isn't something I go to, it's who I am. Have you heard this? Church isn't something, I hear this all the time. You know, I see the perfectly curated Instagram posts and stories of people with their freshly brewed coffee in their PJs on, Netflix in the background, and this statement, you know? Church isn't something I go to, it's who I am. Or the soccer mom on Sunday mornings, taking a picture of her Tim Hortons on the sideline cheering her kids. Church isn't something I go to, it's who I am. Here's the, the thing with this state. It's such an interesting statement because it's sneaky, isn't it? Right? Because there are, there are absolutely part truths in this, in this saying. If anybody would say, hey, we want to be the church, it's this community and it's me, obviously, and those who teach us up front. But you know, you know who's not saying this statement? Typically people who are involved in the Jesus community. Right? Here's what I want to do with this statement, because it's sneaky, but I want to actually look at what this statement means. And I think we have to think deeply about our cultural phrases now within the church. Because it's interesting, when you look at the word church, the word ecclesia in the New Testament, it basically has one meaning. And for a lot of us in the church, we think it's mutually exclusive to Jesus. So we think of church, like ecclesia, as, oh, that was a thing that Christians did. And that's just not true. It was a common word that simply meant assembly. Church, it was used in Roman context, around Roman Senate context. Other people outside of Christians would use this word church or ecclesia, and it simply means gathering. Now, when you think of it like this, this actually annihilates this saying, well, I don't necessarily go to church, but it's who I am. It's a little odd that we would use this in our vocabulary simply because of exactly what this word means. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? You follow me? It just simply means gathering. And so now we use it as though it's us everywhere we go, and I get why we do that at times. But let's, I want you to see how odd this statement is. Let's just look at this in a few different statements, all right? Let's do this. I am the gathering. Oh, you are, eh? So, you know, the gathering isn't something that I go to, but I, I am the gathering. Okay, cool. Or what about this? There's a few, uh, a few families right now, a few couples uh, that are getting married. This year. We have three couples in our church getting married. Isn't that great? And super excited uh, to be a part of that, and really, it's going to be so much fun. But imagine me as somebody being invited to their wedding said something like this. Well, I don't really go to the wedding, but I, I am the wedding. Okay, it's a, little, it's a little odd, 
It's also a wee tad arrogant. The wedding isn't something I go to, but I am the wedding. Or what about this? The basketball team isn't something that I go to, but I am the basketball team. Sounds now, I know some professional athletes, it sounds a lot like what they would say. This sounds, friends, like Antonio Brown. Anybody with me? Antonio Brown, right? Um, You know, when we say, I am the church, I get it. But I think we have to be careful to say that this is something that I don't have to go to. Because if you just plainly look at the language, I think when you look just, just at what it means, church is a gathering. And to actually be the church, the point is this, is that our identity is actually a gathered people. So I've even corrected my language a little bit around this. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm a follower of Jesus wherever I go. But I, I grow a little weary of actually saying I'm the church everywhere I go because the church means gathering or assembly. I am the assembly. Yes, I get I get. I, I don't want us to stop necessarily saying that. That's not the point of this. I just want us to think deeply about what these words actually mean. Because you know this, it's kind of become an excuse, you know, for the person sitting in a cafe drinking their flat white and eating their lemon loaf and them saying, listen, the church isn't something I go to, it's who I am. But the church actually means gathering or assembly. And the point is this, is that our identity is a gathered people. This is what it actually means to be the church. A guy named Joseph Hellerman wrote a great little book called When the Church Was Family. And he talks about the cultural moment in the first century. It was really interesting around, around family and how the, the church, the people of God, began to embody this posture. He says three things about this. He says, one, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. Two, in the New Testament world, a person's most important group was their blood family. So your family in the, in the ancient near East in the Roman Empire was your family. And three, he says, in the New Testament world, the closest family bond was the bond of, was not the bond of marriage, sorry, it was the bond between siblings. And so he begins to dissect culture at that moment in time and then look at how the church begins to embody their own mission and practice. And he says this, the Christian communities established by Peter, Paul, and others in the Roman Empire were strong group surrogate family units in which the good of the group took priority over the desires and aspirations of individual matters. That there was this crazy call towards each other where the churches in the ancient Near East, in in the, uh, the Mediterranean, were actually surrogate families. And part of that is because this is all they had. Think about your family and every, you know, you choose to follow Jesus and you come into the way of Jesus but your family has a completely different worldview. You're shunned, you're excommunicated at the depth. And there's one church in town typically, like Ephesus, Corinth. There's only really one community at this point. It's so fresh and new that the church actually began to become this family with unbreakable ties. And I know we live in a different cultural moment, but if I were to give you a Bible on a deserted island, I love songs, sir, I love what we do, but I think one of the things you would get is that there's these strong ties together to be the family of God. And you know, we've talked the last few teachings about spiritual growth and a lot of us, and we, if you haven't been here, I encourage you to listen back because formation has been such an important piece of our story. But a lot of people say, I wanna grow or I wanna change. And Hellerman would say this. He'd say spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church 
almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. And what we find in the Bible, it's crazy. We find a God who seems at least as much concerned with his group, his people, the family of God, so me and you in relationship with each other, as he is concerned with the individual, me and my relationship with him. Isn't that crazy? There's as much or more emphasis on us. And so I even say to people, when you read the scriptures, when you read you, you know, right? Common English. You is usually plural. And when you read in the scriptures, it's the same thing, this call towards each other. Are you following me? This is, be- this is a beautiful, deep, amazing call for us as God's family. He says this. He goes on, Hellerman. He says, God's intention is not to become the feel-good father of a myriad of isolated individuals who appropriate the Christian faith as yet another avenue toward personal enlightenment. Amazing. And we cannot, as a community, escape the fact, and I, this has been my journey over the last number of years, that the deepest form of worship that we could ever practice as a community is a re- relentless commitment to God's family. You hear what I said? The deepest form of worship that we can experience in this community is a relentless community, uh, commitment sorry, to God's family. I'm actually growing really weary these days to exclusively call worship music because I think you, we've been on this journey. Worship is everything that we do. And I get a little concerned when we, can, we need to grow in our worship and our singing and our music time. We want, we want that. But imagine growing vertically in our worship without growing horizontally. I'm kind of, there's a little bit of weariness around, well, we just need to be better worshipers. But actually the way in which our deepest sense of worship, it's actually vertical with our brothers and sisters. How do we grow deep in worship? It's as deep as knowing and serving the people around us. It's as deep as becoming family. And the reality is, is we could be a church that sings and quote-unquote worships really well, but miss actually the whole story that we've been talking about all morning. And I'm actually growing a little weary of that. I want us to grow in singing and music and in this response time and coming to the tables. We want that. But actually, the deepest form of worship you're going to experience is among your brothers and sisters here in the community. You with me? This is actually, this is just, if you're on a deserted island, you were given a Bible, I think this is the kind of thing that you would come to a conclusion to. And yes, there's songs and sermons and there's different things that we do as a community to express ourselves. But man, the deepest form of worship that I've experienced, and this is the journey we've been on, is a relentless commitment to those to those around us. So we have two common things that we often say around. You've probably heard these at the community. The really practical stuff is that life posture is way greater than tasks. And what we mean by that is, is there's certainly tasks a part of a community and somebody set up your chair this morning and somebody right now is taking care of your kids. God bless them, right? That's pretty cool. I'm very thankful for that. And our junior highs and everything, there's stuff that needs to be done. But what we actually want to cultivate here is a deeper sense of just life posture towards each other, family and community. But we often always say this too, and this has risen to the top in who we are 
as, as a church. That church's family is way bigger and way better and way uh, much a, a much better posture to live out than church as an event. Church's family, if you're on a deserted island, I'll give you a Bible. This is, I think, what you get. Not events, but church as family. And certainly we have time, you know, we have a call time here in which we post when people come. There's certain things obviously that we live out, but man, we are really going after church's family. Maybe some of you guys saw the recent documentary on Hulu or Netflix called Fire. Anybody? And basically what it is, it's the story of a music mogul and a famous tech entrepreneur who attempt to throw a music festival in the Bahamas for rich kids and social media influencers. Have you seen it? And it goes tragically wrong. And so as, I don't even throw the picture up, but as Heather and I were watching this, I don't really get anxiety, but watching this gave me deep anxiety as I sat on the edge of my couch watching this debacle. And it was just, it was interesting because they gave this great expectation of what this time was going to be. It was going to be in the Bahamas and they used like UN tents that they were promoting as like luxury villas and the event didn't even happen. The greatest thing was is that the, like, the first day somebody posted this and this is what actually killed the event. A picture, my friends, it was supposed to be luxury food and a picture of a cheese sandwich. This is what killed it. Now some of you will watch this, but as we watched it together, there was so much uh, just critique for me as I watch this because I began to think of the church. You know, obviously, one of the things that rises to the top is our propensity as humans and even the church to oversell things, right? Like with Instagram, where everything is beautiful and pretty. And here's the thing, we do it too. The other thing that just kind of came to the top as I was wrestling with this is to think that our events are actually the answer, Right? So what I did after watching the documentaries, I listened to some podcasts with some people that were involved with the Fire Festival, and they were like music industry executives, and they were talking about the reality that the music industry and events on their own are so hard. Obviously, an example of this in the documentary, but even at a deeper level, like it's just hard from moment to moment to run events. And here's the thing, we, and I'm thinking about the church, we think we can make church a weekly event without it become absolutely draining. You know, this executive talked about how like after these events they run, they're just, they go, and it's hard even to make it. And I just got thinking like, man, we try and do the church as an event, it's absolutely gonna be draining. You know, I don't wanna be disparaging to anyone, but I have a lot of friends right now who are, in churches, they are on staff and work in churches where their services are events from week to week. And can I, be, can I let you in on a little secret? They are exhausted. They're burnt out. I talk to them all the time. And they're on the hamster wheel and they find it hard to get off because they're in communities where church is an, an event from week to week. And it just, if, if, Real people in the real world, in the professional world are saying these events are just so hard to pull off. My thing is, why would we even try and do that in the church? Yes, there's a call time. Yes, we do certain things. But church as a family, I think, is the way in which we live this out. Church as a family. And, you know, just really practically, we always say here that everything is an invitation. I love that little phrase that's popped up over the last number of years. Everything here is an invitation. Everything you're called into is an invitation. 
and I don't mean this disparagingly, but I just want to put it out there. You know, we got so in-depth about philosophy and formation the last couple weeks. This is really simple. I'll put it like this. We're here as a community and a family, but it's up to all of us to actually participate in it. We're here as a family. We've set this thing up, we believe, as a family and as a community that's drawn in and brought together, and we believe we're caught up in a greater story that we've just talked about. But it's, you know, the beautiful thing is when everything's an invitation, all of us in this room have free will, and the invitation is to us to actually participate in what we do here. You follow me? It's actually a beautiful invitation to say, listen, we'll practice as church's family and the invitation is out. And so the way that we've been living this out is basically in two things. One, Sunday morning gatherings. We believe this is a great environment for the church to flow in and function in as we gather together here on Sunday mornings for music and teaching, a time of community and connection, kids and youth programs. And then we're just really honing down on Praxis Communities. And practice, practice communities are just simply small groups of people that gather together throughout the week. Typically, they gather around tables and we eat meals together, we study the scriptures, we reflect, and we practice the way of Jesus together. But I cannot and we cannot escape. Just the, the, the reality that's in front of us is that we just want to be the family of God. And I get it. In a, in a moment of individualism, which again, I love right? Tonight, I will sit in a room somewhere empty and read a book written by a dead guy. Anybody with me? Is that like the greatest thing ever? Some of you are like, that sounds like the bad place. To me, it's the good place, right? I get it. Autonomy is just screaming at us. Just be autonomous. But the one, this may actually, this is probably the most beautiful thing in our vision and values, but it's probably the hardest because it's call, God is calling us to live this out, to be his reconciliation project and it means being drawn in to a family. And so certainly formation is a big part of what we do, but the way in, but we actually live this practically out is by participating in the family. And I just felt like this morning, amongst all we've talked about the last couple weeks, this is pretty much it. It's just a call uh, to participate. There's so many, I was saying last week, uh, just to close, and we're going to come to the tables, but there's been so many great things that have happened since we launched Ah, I, Heather and I look at this community, we love, we just look around, even around on Ash Wednesday, around my dinner table and living room, so many good things happening, a community starting, people practicing the way of Jesus, people practicing fasting, there's so many great things, and then it's been really, this has been really hard for a lot of us. There's been things that have happened um, in our community, and many of you know this, with brothers and sisters who have gone through deep, really difficult things. Imagine church was just an event. I just... There was a moment a couple years ago where it's just like, we, we've got to press into this. Church cannot just be an event. It has to be this community and family. And many of you in this room, most of you in this room, have felt it, and it's changing your life step by step. So it's a, this is basically a call just to practice, to play, to join in on what God is doing. And our hope is, is that other people join in. They would just understand, you know, we're not, we're not necessarily going after a, an event, though we get together. One of the things we want to be is this family together. You with me? You with me? 